0: Welcome back to Safe Talk with Safe Start. I'm your host, Tim Page Botterf, and at bat for us today, is a very special guest. And just not because I count him among my dearest friends, Joe Tantarelli has been to the other side. That means he has died, and we are blessed that he's come back to us and his family. He was literally buried alive early on in his career. In addition to that, Joe has been speaking at safety conferences for years. And in my mind, has been impacting safety professionals, workers, and their families for generations. Joe, welcome to the podcast, my friend.
1: Tim, let me say sincerely, it's my pleasure to get a chance to speak to your listeners today. And thank you for the
0: invitation. Uh, It's my pleasure to have you here today, Joe. (laughs) Joe, I think it'd be helpful if uh, you told our audience, if you kind of walk them through your work history, um, I think that kind of played a role and your accident
1: yeah thanks tim i agree Uh, i should probably take you through my 56 years work safety journey and it's going to have to be (laughs) in (laughs) hyperdrive or we'll be here for three days Uh, my first job was with my dad who was a building masonry concrete company uh absolutely no formal safety um yet no major injuries in over 50 years of business two things Safety built into planning, always, and big stick enforcement to back that up. So <laughs> uh excavating in 1976, that's when I went out on my own. Uh was there a safety orientation in 1976? None. Safety <laughs> training, none to amount to anything. Uh there were some key points shared with me that first day on the job. Number one, you need to get the pipe buried before you get buried. Mm. The longer the trench is open more of a chance you're going to get buried. If you get buried, but it doesn't kill you right off, hang tight. There's always going to be a second collapse. It's inevitable. And it'll be more catastrophic than the first one. And there's nothing you're going to be able to do about it.
0: But watch it happen. And you will die. (laughs) Well, I don't mean to be laughing because I understand your experience and I've heard the story. But that's kind of some in-your-face introduction into safety, don't you think?
1: Yeah, and surprisingly, it worked, as your listeners will soon discover, but only for a time. Uh, There I was listening to that spiel, and all I could think about was, I want to be an operator, I want to be an operator, I want to be an operator. And my last thought before we went to work was, that will never happen to me. Mm. Uh, The next eight to ten years, my safety education was at HKU. Uh, where I graduated from honors, by the way. If you don't know that university, it's Hard Knocks University. Extremely (laughs)
0: painful education. Yeah, I kind of know that university, HKU. (laughs) I've heard it before, but yeah, not so much with a visual like you just gave us. So, Um, okay, now we're going to see the impact OSHA started to have, I think.
1: Yes, and thank goodness. OSHA started requiring training, as many people know, and just like our listeners, I sat through a lot of compliance classes. I had a question. Why did I do what I did when I knew better? Hmm. Compliance training was improving my knowledge of safety and risk, uh, but it wasn't answering that nagging question.
0: Well, let's kind of get to the answer to that question and to find out how you came up with that answer. Okay. It's
1: toward the last decade of my construction career. I was chosen to be a part of our company's growth and safety and Getting star approval with OSHA's Voluntary Protection Program, I was a safety and production training specialist and assistant to the safety engineer. I quickly realized no matter how much training we did, people were still digging potential graves instead of safe trenches, even though they knew
0: the risk. Mm. So statistically, we're still seeing that today. I mean, we're still losing an average of two lives a month, uh, of course, according to the NIOSH study that was done in 2016. And, and of course, it's been improving incrementally ever since um, an entrench collapses. But feel free to check my sources. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is so sad. And it really
1: pains me that there's so much unnecessary heartache and hardship on so many families. Mm. Uh, In 2005, I signed up for a class at our BWC Safety Conference in Ohio. Uh, It was titled Complacency in the Workplace. It was by our dear friend and colleague, Gary Higby. He mentioned four states, four errors. The only reason why I wrote them down, because he said they're involved in over 95% of all of our injuries uh, 24-7.
0: So Gary just kind of skimmed the surface of human factors, but it was enough to answer the question, why did I do what I did when I knew better?
1: Yes, and it was quite simple, Tim. It was on my way home from this session. The phrase we use extensively, the light came on. Question, mm-hmm. why did I do what I did when I knew better? Answer, I was in all four states. That affected my decision-making in the heat of the moment. And then came the critical errors.
0: Well, so great. Um, many of us have had that light come on. Um, a lot of our listeners have had that light come on for them. And I've also seen the light come on for countless others who we've been teaching.
1: Yeah, years after that day of reckoning, <laughs> I stalked Gary <laughs> on the internet. Uh, I think you're pretty good at that too. Uh, <laughs> I sent him an email thanking him for helping me answer that question. I shared how I started telling my story and how it related to those states and those errors soon after I left that session. And he asked if I received payment for those speeches. I thought that was kind of a weird question. And I replied, no, just expenses.
0: (laughs) This response is is really great from Gary. So do me a favor. Please share that response with our listeners.
1: All right. And Gary reminds me of this regularly. Uh, (laughs) Good, because it's copyrighted material. Hey, you've been stealing our stuff. And by the way, that's edited for public use. Uh, You've been stealing it for so long, you might as well come to work for us. (laughs) So I thought, you know, why wouldn't I join the only organization that fills the gap in the world of safety? The end? Nope. Only the beginning.
0: (laughs) So since we've already jumped out of hyperspeed, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you mentioned you were introduced to the states and the critical errors or what we call the headache. But you weren't formally introduced to the aspirin, which is, of course, the critical error reduction techniques until you attended your first Safe Start workshop some years ago. So I'm going to let our listeners know that you'll address those certs at the end of your story and share how that safety journey was affected by your incident. So please help us join you on your day, Monday, June 6, 1983.
1: Well, okay, Tim, but we're going to have to go back further in time. We're going back to July 18, 1957. I was born in a small town in Ohio uh, to two wonderful parents. <laughs> whoa. whoa, whoa. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Uh, uh, even hyperdrive's not going to help there, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Not that far back. Uh, we are going to go back to June 6, 1983. I'd been in the excavating business for seven years now. Five of that seven years, I was the excavator slash boss on the basement crew. Uh, Perfect job for a type A personality. I had developed a lifestyle of running all day, every day. I couldn't find the off button. Uh, June 6th, no exception. I hit the ground running when the alarm went off. Since I was only 26, my Sunday crowded into Monday. You know what I mean, Tim?
0: Uh, Well, when I was 26, it was lights out at 2.30 in the morning. I mean, alarm goes off at 5.30. You got it. Exactly.
1: Three hours of sleep. And at at 26, you're thinking, yeah, three's enough. At least we think that.
0: (laughs) Well, let's jump into the truck with you and drive to the shop. Do you need to drive this fast? Uh, As a matter of fact, yes, I do. I do have to drive that
1: fast because I have a need. A need (laughs) for speed. Mm -hmm. So we race to the shop, race to load the excavator. I catch some Z's in the tractor trailer rig while we're racing to the job site.
0: <laughs> well, hold on. Let's reassure our listeners you weren't driving.
1: Uh, no. Uh, so we raced to unload the excavator. Oh, fudge! No four-inch pipe. Uh, and that's also edited for uh, public use. Uh, okay, okay. The builder is responsible to have the four-inch pipe on the job. We have the six-inch. Oh, no. I used a lot of four-letter words. I heard from my dad uh, when I worked with him, directed toward the builder. It got the point across that I wasn't happy, and the builder promised the 4-inch was on the way. As I stomped out of the office trailer, I said, it better be. And I started digging pipe for the trench with the slope. Now, our trench safety back then was based on speed. The longer you're in the trench, the more slope. In other words, if you were able to stand in my trench, you would look down that trench and see that it looked like a V. Uh, The trench walls were sloped somewhat, Mm -hmm. and they were wider at the top the longer you were in that area. The V was narrower at the top when you spent less time. The V was wider where we tired our six-inch pipe into the 14 feet deep uh, mainline sewer. I dug the trench while my two grade men laid six-inch pipe. When we were laid up to within one foot of the basement, we had to transition over to the four-inch, and it wasn't there yet. So in the interest of time, I went ahead and dug 25 to 30 feet of trench without 4-inch. I assumed that the pipe was right around a quarter, and boy, was I wrong.
0: At this point, I think our listeners are hearing some of our uh, human factors in this story.
1: Absolutely. The only thing we could do was wait for the 4-inch. It took a long time to get there, and consequently, the trench had been open too long. The view is narrow at the top where we were working. It was only natural for me to mentally say the trench has been open a long time, Joe. Pay attention. Look out for signs of trench collapse. Well, the only thing I was thinking about is all this time we waited. We should have had all the pipe in the trench and have the trench backfilled and have at least half that basement dug. You see, I'm running out of time. When the pipe finally arrived, I started using those words again. Uh, Let's go, boys. Let's get that pipe laid. The next issue raised its ugly head. These two grade men are great boys, both inexperienced, 17 years old. Johnny just started working with me two weeks after he dropped out of high school. They were unable to install a fitting after they applied glue. That was my only fitting. And if that glue sets up before the fittings connected to the pipe, I can't use the fitting. I've got seconds to get that fitting on. I jumped straight into the trench. And as I was jumping into the trench, I yelled, get out. And
0: I got the fitting on in time. Mm. So a lot of stress is involved, I think. And this is where a bad day is quickly getting worse. Absolutely. I saw
1: movement out of the corner of my eye. One whole side of the narrow V was moving. The trench is going to collapse. Automatic thought, run to the shallow end of the trench. Why automatic? Not my first dance with a trench collapse. When I turned to run, I saw both boys in the line of fire. They were oblivious to the fact that they were about to die. I shoved both of them into the end of the trench to safety. I tried to run in behind them, but lost my way of escape. So I ran to get to the other end of the trench, another safe area. Why did I try this? Did it before, got away with it. You aren't judging me, Tim, are you?
0: No, absolutely not.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I've known Tim for a long time and he knows I'm joking. He's never judgmental. Some (laughs) folks, though, most of whom don't see that complacency affects them, might be judgmental. That's why I ask at safety conferences and every time I tell my story, has anyone other than me stood above the top step on a ladder that says, this isn't a step, to get something done at home? Even the ladder is screaming that this is
0: a bad idea. Complacency. (laughs) Even when we know it's extremely dangerous, do we say I've got this? Joe admitted to me that he was saying, I've got this, as he was trying to escape that trench collapse.
1: Yes, and I was screaming that the whole time I was going, I've got this, I've got this. Well, a wall of dirt, eight and a half feet tall, three to four feet thick, and about 25 feet long fell into the trench like it was dumped in by a large dump truck. Luckily, I made it to the very end of the collapse. I was buried to my armpits. Uh, At that point, all I did was scream and cry at the top of my voice. Please don't let me die in this ditch. Please don't let me die in this ditch. Over and over again. And going in and out of consciousness, by the way, I kept thinking, you can't pass out. If you do, you will die. These boys need you to tell them what to do. Luckily, the boys were not buried. Uh, They ran to my rescue. If I hadn't saved them... (laughs) I wouldn't be here talking to you today. Since our only shovel was buried, Tommy tried to pull me out of the dirt by my wrist. I yelled, "Stop!" I tried to stay awake long enough to tell him where to dig and how to dig, and those young men fearlessly dug with their hands while never considering the risk of life and limb to themselves. When they got me out of the trench, I self-diagnosed. "Duh. <laughs> I've broken ribs." We didn't have 911. Didn't have cell phones in 1983. I thought, just run me to the ER. They'll take me up. I'll be home for dinner. Why doesn't a 26-year-old realize he has life-threatening injuries? I'm a superhero. Mm -hmm. And I'm too young to die. My ambulance, 1978 Chevy truck. What was worse? (laughs) The driver didn't know where the hospital was. The new guy lived nearby, knew how to get there. Once the guys got me into the ER, it got really frantic at that time. A nurse took my BP. I heard 60 over 40. Uh-oh. I'm dying. Mm. Years later, Johnny told my son that I was pleading. Don't let me die. I have a wife and kids. A friend of mine said the ER doctor told him that I started to flatline by the time he arrived. They knew I was bleeding internally, but not sure where. S- over six hours in the emergency surgery. Found the bleeding, got it stopped. Next three days or so, uh, very cloudy to me, uh, morphine stupor. I'm pretty sure. Oh, and by the way, I was unaware that I was fighting to stay alive during that time. Also,
0: you know, Joe, every time you tell that story, I kind of get, I just internally just feel some of your injuries Hmm. and other than the broken ribs, um, internal bleeding. Was there anything else about your injuries you want to tell the listeners?
1: Yeah, well, I did misdiagnose my injuries. I didn't have broken ribs. <laughs> <laughs> what it was, Tim. It was left renal nephrectomy and post-traumatic thrombosis. OK.. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> Layman's terms. Uh, renal artery in my left kidney had stretched and then snapped. The six specialists that were in that emergency room or in that uh, surgery room tried to sew that artery back together, but it kept tearing again. So they came to the conclusion that the kidney had been without ample blood supply for a long time. So it's probably going to be useless. And if we don't get this guy stabilized, we're going to lose him. Hmm. I lost my left kidney. And since they were focusing on the crucial components, like keeping me alive, uh, I didn't know about the three discs bulging in my lumbar spine.
0: Is that okay. So there are always lingering consequences with serious injury and trauma. Aside from the obvious, I, I <laughs> I know what a bulging disc is, a herniated disc. Um, Can you share maybe some of those potential lifelong consequences?
1: Well, there were a few issues with the kidney loss. Uh, Not surprisingly, the disc could cause constant issues with pain. But I have managed to deal with those physical issues. Uh, One thing, accepting I would never be the same guy I was when I walked out of the house on June 6, 1983, was part of that process. And it was so scary back then as I was the sole provider for our young family. Yeah.
0: They don't talk about it back in the eighties, I'm sure, because, you know, in these headlines today, PTSD is, is huge. So I, obviously I don't think that ever came up back when you had your injuries.
1: No, I read about that in an article in, uh, probably three sentences, uh, clear in the back of the newspaper in the middle eighties, probably with the Vietnam veterans, uh, Yeah, you're absolutely right, Tim. The the next hurdle was after being pushed back to work prematurely. And after only four and a half months of of having that accident, I realized I had emotional consequences. And for the next three years, between 3 and 3.30 a.m., I'd have screaming nightmares. They started with me getting buried. I couldn't get out. Then whoever I worked with that day was buried in my nightmares that night. And for some reason, Sharon, my wife of seven years, Billy, my son, five years old, and Michelle, my three and a half year old daughter, were buried in my nightmares. With a lot of support and patience from people in my life, unconditional love from the folks that I love so much, and a lot of spiritual help, I've been able to deal with my emotional consequences.
0: Wow. Um, So there it is again, still feeling those uh, emotional connections to your story. Uh, So this is not the end of the story. Many victims of these traumatic incidents like yours weren't even present when it happened. I know it's not easy, but Joe feels it's imperative that he shares. I know it's hard in this aspect of the story. So go on, Joe.
1: This is always the hardest part, but it has to be said. It's not fair to the folks who listen to my story, and it's not fair to my family to admit the toughest part. Mm. This is so hard to share because it still hurts. There are emotional consequences for my family. 20 years after this incident, I started telling my story for the very first time. We didn't even talk about it at home. The floodgates opened. My uh, wife, Sharon, attended a session with me, and on the way home, she stated that she couldn't believe that I would share that story with over 300 strangers, since we hadn't even dealt with it alone. Uh, She said that she didn't share this with me at the time because she knew that I had had a lot on my plate after that incident. She proceeded to tell me that if I was five minutes late coming home after my incident, that the kids were crying and asking, Is dad okay? Where is he? She said, I wanted to cry, but I had to hide the tears so I'd look strong for the kids. Billy attended a session and said, Dad, I can remember that like it was yesterday. I can remember after that happened, wondering on the bus if you were okay. Hey, that's way too much to worry about for a (laughs) five-year-old. Michelle, she was so young when it happened, she doesn't realize why she has so much anxiety in her life. She does remember Sharon telling her uh, to stay off daddy's lap for a while because he has a bad boo-boo. Sadly, she still recalls the nightmare screams clear up into her teen years. One of the few times I've seen my dad cry when he described in the privacy of his own home how badly my mom took the chain of events. But I'm going to leave you today with a positive note. My goal is to make sure my beautiful, intelligent, perfect grandchildren, Carter, Lucy, Myla, Jovi, and Carson, don't have to carry the emotional baggage that my children had to carry. I extend that goal to whoever hears my story. How do we do that? By sharing human factors management training. You see, this would just be another tragic story if we didn't add in what could have prevented it. Uh, Well, I know
0: that last part was hard, uh, Joe, and thank you for sharing it. Um, We need to be reminded that the people who love us the most pay the most emotionally, especially when these kind of things happen. So I have to ask, a lot of our Safe star listeners are probably going to go, how about the critical error reduction techniques? So do you think any of the certs might have helped prevent this incident?
1: Yeah, thank you for reminding me, Tim. Absolutely. The certs are the proactive side of safety. In other words, I could have started preventing that incident when my alarm rang. Self-trigger on the fatigue, right? I can't go back to bed. (laughs) I don't want to lose my job. But the next best thing, get your eyes on task, keep your mind on task, keep looking for line of fire, and keep looking for problems with balance, traction, and grip. Self-trigger on the rushing and the frustration at any time during that day. Just enough time to ask, is this state worth the risk? I'm sure you all know what the uh, afterthought was after that incident. No, it's not worth the risk. Analyze close calls. I <laughs> Seven years, there were a lot of close calls that I could have analyzed. And looking at others for the patterns increase the risk of injury, uh, it's just overwhelming how I could have done that also. And most importantly with me would have been work on habits to deal with complacency. Stop trying to jump in if there was a problem.
0: Okay. That was a good review. Um, I got to say, thank you, Joe, for sharing your story with us today. It was amazing to tell the story. Number one, to go through the emotions and to relive it. And 20 years, that's a long time to come to terms with a story like that. So thank you for sharing.
1: And thank you for letting me share my story with an audience that otherwise I wouldn't have been able to reach. I'm so appreciative of that, Tim.
0: Thank you. You're you're too right. You're too right. Um, So you're welcome. Thank you so much, Joe. Um, If you'd like to reach out to Joe and pick his brain, you can do so by email. It's real easy. It's joe at safestart.com. That's J-O-E at safestart.com. And remember, share this episode with your friends, uh, coworkers, and you can email me at tim at safestart.com if you have some topics that you'd like for us to cover and if you'd like more information on safe start or any of the family of products like rate your state and others like that that might have helped joe that day reach out to your account executive or check out safestart.com so joe thanks for being here i appreciate you you may want to share with this podcast with the next safety meeting or even at your next toolbox topic thanks to our listeners for listening and from safe talk with Safe Start. I'm Tim Page-Botter, and until next time, we'll see you down the road.